Great, great worship. You know, one of the things I love about our church is that we, every December, try really hard to usher in the uh, feeling of the Christmas season. And uh, I think our, our worship bands are doing a great job of that today. And yeah, you can clap at that. And uh, hopefully at, at Chapel and Northridge and Cactus, and then those of you who are in the overflow on the other side of our campus, uh, hopefully you're feeling that as well, certainly, and all of you joining us from home. Hey, I'm going to make a couple of comments uh, today before we get into uh, the Word, and uh, we do this every December, just sort of do some uh, housekeeping things, but really important things that have to do with our church and our community. So this week, going in the mail, is going to be our annual report. We mail it out. Out to every uh, member and friend of our church. If you're on our database, you'll get it this week in the mail. Uh, we've called it this year, Telling the Stories of 2020. And as I always do, I encourage you very strongly to read this because we put a lot of work into this. All of our pastors and our staff scouring the last year, uh, finding stories and statistics of what the Lord has been up to here at our church. And so I, that's really what I call this, is stories and stats is what it is. Is. And so if you like statistics on, on you know, what's going on in our church about how many people serve and baptisms and things like that, all of that's in here and small groups and things like that. But then we've intermingled it with no less than, than 16 stories, individual stories. It's about 47 pages long, so it's a very full report, and it will encourage you as to what, the, what God is doing here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And then another reason we do this is, is that twice a year we update you on the finances of our church at the end of our fiscal year in June, and then certainly at the end of the calendar year. And on the very last page, there's just one page of a financial update. And we're doing very, very well, but we do remind you all uh, that like most nonprofit organizations and certainly churches, that year-end giving is very important for us to stay on budget. Uh, in any given month with what our needs are, December requires about 60% more because of the patternistic way that people give. So as you do your year-end giving and as you read about your church, we would uh, highly encourage you to consider us and your church in your year-end giving. Just an encouragement to you. Now, um, in continuing our desire to get out there, you know our vision is to get God, get real, and get out there and serve our community. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we consistently choose at this time of year to devote a, a significant part of our resources to meeting a need in our community. We do that all year long with food drives and clothes drives and shoe drives and, and turkey drives and things like that. And we give away a lot of money, but we reserve December as a time to do a significant giving project to bless the community around us. And, and we've historically chosen to do this with our winter wonder program or, or extravaganza, which we're not doing this year because of COVID. And if you've been with us during winter wonder, you know, we've also historically chosen something with low-income kids in Phoenix and Scottsdale and their education. So we've built computer labs in Title I schools in Scottsdale here. We have uh, done the lunch program, the weekend lunch program for Title I schools and low-income kids. We've done, obviously, toys and things like that. And this year, with not having winter wonder and the, with the needs being so great because of the pandemic and unemployment and all of that, uh, the elders have chosen, and, and I want you to listen closely, to go big 
or go home, as the old phrase says. In other words, Jim, Jim Collins calls these BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, and the elders this year have decided to set a very, very big goal to meet a very, very big need in our year-end uh, uh, giving uh, ministry here for, for the community. And, and so what we did this year is we approached the city of Phoenix and asked them what their greatest need was when it came to low-income come kids and education. Just tell us, what, what is your need? We started talking to the city of Phoenix, and they clearly said, hands down, that the greatest need is what they call bridging the digital divide. That when it comes to kids who've had to stay home and kids who, who generally are home, that, that because they don't have access to technology and it's so tied to their education today, and because of the pandemic especially, it's just become a huge need. So we put together a video to show you what the need is as we've been networking with the city of Phoenix, and then we're gonna bring to you what we want to do. It's gonna be huge, but it could really, really bless these kids. So look up here on the screen, and then we'll talk a bit about this. So the homework gap and the digital divide have always been a problem in education, but um, since COVID and the pandemic have happened, the huge gap has just been exacerbated. There are kids all across our community and our state and our country who do not have access to the technology that they need to learn and grow and thrive. In some places in our state, as soon as schools shut down, if they didn't have a computer or internet, some of those kids were lost off the map. Like literally the teachers didn't hear from them again. They were out there going to their houses trying to find where they were. You know, we used to think of technology as being almost supplemental. It was, it was kind of an enrichment activity that you did in school. It's gone past being enrichment. Technology is literally the way that they access their right to a free and public education. It's been a really difficult obstacle to overcome for families. I have a daughter who is, she's gonna be 25 next week, and she is currently stationed in Missouri. She's Army. And then I have an 18-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 11-year-old, and then we adopted five of my nieces and nephews. We were struggling to find laptops for all the kids I would come home and, and try to uh, jump in and, and be like the teacher for them at home. Jumping from device to device was hard for them, so they lost time at school because they couldn't complete things that they didn't know how to complete. When a student doesn't have access to those computers, to those laptops that, that are initially making their education happen, they fall behind in every, every category in school. And there was a principal, and she wrote me this email that just made me cry. She had a second grader, and that little second grader, the only technology in their family home was her mom's cell phone. But that cell phone was with her mom when she went to work. That meant that a child all day wasn't having access to the education that they needed, right? Which meant that they're going backwards academically.
when Shannon came to me and said, Scottsdale Bagel really cares about the digital divide. Like, they care about what's really happening. If Scottsdale Bible comes and joins us with School Connect as a nonprofit and the city government, we all put our money together, we can actually do away with the problem. And that's what we're doing. I mean, we're actually all working together to accomplish that. And I think that's an incredibly beautiful thing. Every single child should have the opportunity to have the resources they need to be successful. So it's no secret that Scottsdale Bible Church has been blessed with amazing technology. Even during this pandemic, we have been able to come into literally you know, thousands of people's living rooms, wherever you are, to deliver these worship services via technology. We, we have them on all three campuses. We're just blessed when it comes to technology. Many of you are blessed in your personal lives with technology as well. You, you know that. And so here's the deal, and this is huge. When we asked School Connect, the nonprofit that's looking to provide enough educational laptops for all the kids that they know of in the city of Phoenix as they've networked with the schools uh, and what the need is that it would take to meet that need. The answer, as you can imagine, was and is daunting. They need about 10,000 computers. Each computer, even though they get the best deal from HP and Dell and what have you, is about $190 each. The need is about $2 million. And so once we discovered that, we then asked what resources they and the school system currently have to meet this need. In other words, tell us about the gap. And I got to tell you, the number was still daunting. <laughs> the number was that they need about 5,200 laptops to meet this need and put this problem behind us. And it adds up to about a million dollars. But if that could be done, we would be able to provide home computer access to every low-income kid uh, that currently has been identified in the city of Phoenix with the schools there, at least the public schools. And so we took this need uh, a little while ago to the elders and said, you know, here's the need, here's what the vision is for our, our December giving project. And the elders prayed about it, they had a lengthy discussion about it, and they essentially said to us and to you, we want to meet this need and bridge the the digital divide. And I remember saying to the elders, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, we want to meet this need and we want to bridge the digital divide. And I said, you mean you want to do all of it? And they said, yes, we want to do all of this. We are a church that's been greatly blessed, both as a congregation as well as each of us individually. They said, let's dig deep. Let's make a massive move of faith and let's provide 5,200 laptops to the to School Connect so that they can get these to the kids and put this need behind us. Let's bridge the digital divide. And so here's our plan for the month of December. And I want you to listen very, very closely because it's going to involve all of us in small and big ways. But we're sharing the need with you today. We're looking to give a million bucks as a church to this December giving project. It'd be the largest giving project that we've ever done outside of Tanzania over in Africa that didn't benefit our church directly. It'd be huge to give this to the city of Phoenix and to these low-income kids. 
kids, and yet the elders have chosen to do that, and we're sharing the need with you to join us in this. So obviously, the, the, the number one thing is, is if you can afford to buy a laptop, it'd be about 190 bucks. We'll give you the website at our website here to do that uh, in a shortly. But if you can do that, that would be great. That'd be one way you can join us. Maybe you can't afford $190, so you buy half a laptop at 95 bucks. But some of you, many of us can afford even a lot more than that. Over and above our year-end giving, we can give even more to meet this need. We could buy 10 laptops or 100, whatever God is leading you to do. And so in addition to our year-end giving, we're asking you to prayerfully join Scottsdale Bible Church in meeting this need. And here's what you need to know. The elders have decided to do this. So we're bringing it to you because this is your church and we're all in this together, but we're going to meet this need. We're gonna find the resources to do it. We've committed to this. It's just that it's a faith move on our part and we need all of us in this together. Again, this would be the largest outside of SBC giving project that, that I know of in the history of our church. And some of you think, well, gosh, I mean, you know, unemployment's high and there's a pandemic going on. I mean, is this really something we should do? What's the answer to that? Yes. My dad, who was born in 1934, reminded me that the most opportunistic time for churches in the last century was during the Great Depression, amen? Because people needed church more so then than any other time. So this is not a time that we shrink back. This is a time where the church shines. And this is just one of the ways that we can do that. And as you can tell, we're very convicted and fired up to do this. I've never been more proud of SBC and our willingness willingness to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, to literally shock the community with our generosity. And, and you guys have done such a great job of that historically, and I believe you'll join us in that now. So here's, here's the website if you want to go get all the detailed information on that. So I'm sorry, it's up on the big screen. Uh, just go to scottsdalebible.com forward slash digital, and you'll get more details than I gave you now, and even a way to give, though we'll be bringing this to you in the uh, coming weeks as we continue to move toward Christmas. So uh, I'm going to pray for us right now. We're going to transition into our time in the word. For those of you who are clock watchers and going, man, that took a long time. Like, are we ever going to get out of here? I'll, I'll truncate my teaching time a little bit, but it's still going to be robust. And, uh, and, and yet, let's, this is important to discuss as we look to bless our community. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessings that you have given to so many of us, especially here at our, at our church. And Lord, even in dire and difficult times that we've all been through, I mean, the Great Recession uh, about 10 years ago, and now, Lord, this pandemic, Lord, you still have shown your faithfulness to us and blessed us in unimaginable ways. And so, God, we want to be those who, as we're going to learn today, like the Magi, lay our treasures down before you and bless others. And so, God, I pray that as we do that here, that you guide each and every one of us on what you would have us to do to meet the needs of our church and year in giving, but also, Lord, to bless this community and the largest giving project that we've ever dreamed about. Lord, we pray that the fruit would be evident that as people associate the meeting of this need with this humble church that, God, they might even look to, to you and to Jesus and give thanks and be drawn to you. 
And so God, I pray as we turn to your word now and open up your book that as always, that you might speak to us through the power and moving of your Holy Spirit. Illumine our minds and our hearts that we might understand rightly what you have written for us. And Lord, our commitment back will be to apply this diligently to our lives. We want to be obedient followers. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So we begin our Christmas series today, and as I've already shared with you in the previous weeks, we have chosen this year to do a three-week series on the Magi called Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. Now, just about everybody and their brother in culture today has at least heard about the Magi, sometimes known as the three wise men or the three kings. They appear in nativity scenes when you see them right next to the shepherds and the animals. They're part of church re creations of Jesus's birth. They appear on Christmas cards that you get in the mail. We can all picture them. Three ornately dressed men approaching the baby Jesus, each holding a gift that we're going to look at over the next three weeks of gold, frankincense, and myrrh as they bow before the baby Jesus. They're the three wise men, the three kings. They're the magi, whatever the magi are. Now, about two years ago at this time in the month of December, I did a single message on the Magi, the first that I had ever done focusing just on these, these Magi. And, and, and during that message, I kind of unpacked for you a little bit about the history of the Magi so that we could all understand them, and then gave you one point. And, and so by way of review, uh, what I want to do right now is just review a couple things we learned two years ago, or a few things, and then we're going to go in a completely different direction than I did two years ago. Uh, and you'll see what that's about in a few minutes. But let me begin by taking about eight or nine minutes to give you four fast facts about the Magi that will get you up to snuff as to who these guys were and even why they might be important to us today. So here are four fast facts about the Magi. First, they are Magi. We'll see what that means in a minute. It's an important name for you to know. Second, they came as a plurality. Third, they came from very far away. And then four, they had a private audience with Jesus. This is what we know about the Magi. So let's take a look at each one of these individually. First, they are the Magi. When the Bible talks about these magi, Matthew's the main one who tells us about them, that word magi, this is important, is a literal transliteration from the Greek in your English Bible. That's why they're called magi. Even though you might not know what they are, you'll see why it's important that we retain that term. So this is what Matthew says. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Bethlehem. So here's the deal that we understand about these magi, because we do know actually a lot about them. This is actually just a transliteration from the Greek. Uh, the singular was called a magos, M-A-G-O-S, the, the plural being magi, M-A-G-I. And, and these were people in the first century who practiced astrology. Uh, they were people who practiced dream interpretation and the magical arts. So the Greek word magikos is where we get our English word magic from. There's a good corollary there. The magi were ones who practiced magi or magic in the Old and New Testament. And they were part of what the ancient world called the pagan occult arts. 
And you guessed it already, this doesn't sound very biblical. It doesn't sound very Jewish. It doesn't sound like these people would have much to do at all in the Bible. And you're actually right. You might wonder, why did they call them wise men over the years? Well, that comes from Daniel chapter 2, where these magi are mentioned, and they're seen as advisors to the secular king Nebuchadnezzar back then. So some people have said, well, they must have been wise to advise the king, so there was that nickname, the wise men. But that's not really what these guys are about. They are secular religionists more than anything else. It's the pagan occult arts that they were into. And then some people call them kings. You ever notice that? You know, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts who traveled afar. Where'd that king thing come from? That actually was invented in the second century by a church father named Tertullian. And he was looking in the Old Testament and he noticed that there was a prophecy that kings would come and, and bow before Jesus. And he associated them with these magi and said, well, they must have been the kings. But there's no evidence that they are actually the kings. And then you go, well, how do they think of three? Well, there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I kid you not, some people said there must have just been three of them. But all of that is not actually in the Bible. What's in the Bible is that we have these magi, these secular religionists who came to check out Jesus. They were prompted directly by God to do so. They followed the star in the sky and that's the first thing we understand, that these guys who would never go to church, never really read the Hebrew Bible, are now appearing before Jesus. And then very quickly, notice the second fast fact, they came as a plurality. I don't need to belabor this one, but the reason I say it this way is that there's no evidence that there were only three of them. It's nice to think of three, it's a nice neat number, uh, but the reality is like the shepherds, it never tells us how many of them there were, there could have been two, there could have been 10, they came as a plurality to Jesus. So let's get the facts straight. Then thirdly notice that they came from very far away. Now, this one's really important. They came from very, very far away. Look at Matthew 2, verse 1 again, but this time from a different angle because it clues us in. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So here's the clue to this one. If this is the, the Middle East here and you have Jerusalem about right here, we know for a fact that Bethlehem is just a little bit southwest of Jerusalem. And so what Matthew is doing is he's pinpointing to Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that these magi came from somewhere in the distant east. But we don't think it was as far as the Orient or Far East Asia because that wouldn't make sense. That'd be an awful long way to travel. Most likely, these were people from Iraq or Iran, back then known as the Babylonian or people of Persian descent. And that's most likely who they are and where they came from. And the reason that this is important is, again, it's Matthew's way of showing that these visitors were not convinced Jews. They were secular religionists at best from the East. They didn't know Jesus, but they were spiritually thirsty and searching for God. And when they would meet Jesus, something very powerful, spiritual sparks were about to fly. And this leads us to the fourth and final fast fact, again, rather important, and that is that they had a private audience with Jesus. 
If any of you have ever seen a nativity scene, you know that they're kind of quaint. You have Jesus, you know, looking all comfortable in that, in that pig trough called a manger, you know, and then you have uh, Joseph and Mary there, and then you have, you know, the shepherds and the animals, and, and then they always insert, have you ever noticed this, the, the, the three wise men or the magi here in that scene? That's actually not true. Uh, Matthew tells us very clearly here that, the, that these magi came to the house that Jesus was staying at, and we know that Jesus wasn't born in a house. And Matthew also makes it clear that they came after the birth of Jesus. And the reason that's important is that these magi were not there when Jesus was born like the other players. They came a few days after this and had a private audience with Jesus. And so God wanted these magi to be alone with him, to do something very special with them. And so we're going to accelerate right now and look at what that special thing is. But let's make sure we got this down. They're the magi, secular religionists. They came as a plurality. We don't know how many. They came from very far away. They were very non-Jewish. And they had a private audience with Jesus coming into this world. And when we looked at the Magi a couple of years ago, the obvious point I made based on this, which we're not going to make this season because I did it two years ago, is that isn't it interesting that God likes to call people who are very far away from him, who are very unfamiliar with church and spirituality as we know it, and he loves to call them into his presence and into his kingdom. In other words, it's, a, it's an evangelistic scenario we see here. That, that, that whether we are willing to share or not, though we need to share, uh, God is going to put a star for them to follow, and he's going to lead them to his son, and that's the business that God is in, and that's what we looked at a couple of years ago and said we should care about the lost as well. But for our purposes in this series, and we're going to slow way down to do this, all of what Rustin talked about last week, this idea of slowing down with the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to focus on those gifts, those treasures that these magi brought with them and laid down before Jesus. Because what you're going to see today, in the time we have remaining and in the coming weeks, is that there's something very profound and instructive and life-giving to you and I with these magi coming and laying down their treasures and giving them to Jesus. So let's look closely right now at the Bible's description of what took place when the Magi eventually got an audience with Jesus. And it's found in one single verse, so it's not complicated. It's really the heart of their visit and what most people think of when they think of the Magi in the presence of Jesus. And here is what Matthew says, Matthew 2, verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child, Jesus, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, here's the problem with this passage and you and me. Some of us have heard this passage so many times over the years that we're almost like, yeah, 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 they got an audience with Jesus and you know, they opened up their gifts and they gave him gifts, kind of like a little drummer boy, what's next? And we need to stop and pause in front of this passage because there's a richness and a profundity here that you don't want to miss. So let's slow down and notice three very important things about the actions of the Magi here as they initially met for the very first time and approached Jesus. And the first thing you're going to want to notice is that they immediately 
fell to the ground and began to worship him. Now again, you go, well, of course it's Jesus. This is an unusual scenario, even in biblical times. Lots of people meet babies in the Bible. You've met babies today. When was the last time you met a baby and you fell to the ground and started worshiping the baby? That doesn't happen very often. So, so Matthew's trying to tell us something here about the emotional effect that being in the presence of this baby had on these unsuspecting magi. They immediately began to worship him. As many of you know, I, I, I love the Bible. I, 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 just, I love every word of it because every word is inspired by God. And, and, and my kids growing up used to call me a dork because I'd spend so much time just parking in front of individual words in the Bible and spending time with them to understand what they mean. And, and I did that again this week with, with that one word that, that appears there, that word fell. Simple word, right? They fell down and, and worshiped him. And I thought to myself, why did Matthew include that word fell? Like, what does that really mean back 2,000 years ago to fall? And so I spent about a half an hour doing a study of the Greek on the word fell. It was actually a very, very fascinating study. It's the Greek word pipto, and it occurs about 100 times in the New Testament. And I loved the Greek definition of fell. I think some of you will like this as well. The word literally means to lose an upright position. That's what it means, to lose an upright position. It's actually a very powerful word, sometimes a very violent word. It's used in the Bible to describe soldiers in battle who, who, who were diving for cover, so very violently diving and losing their upright position as they're trying to get hit by spears and clubs and things like that. And that's the idea, is that these magi intentionally chose a bodily movement in the, in the presence of Jesus. At the very least, they would have kneeled. At the very most, it would have been more violent and physical than that. They literally fell at the feet of this baby. And the reason that's important is because that's leading to an action that's all part of this first action, and that is that they worshipped him. That word worship appears 60 times in the New Testament and it's never used outside of deity. <laughs> it's always used in light of somebody worshiping whom they perceive of or more likely is God. And so these magi who don't know anything about our religion or spirituality or even Jesus are following the star in these the second they get in his presence like many of us would, they realize something is different. And they realize that he is the creator and the sustainer of this world and their souls and that redemption is found in him. So they did the natural thing and they decided to worship him as we all would. That's the first action of the Magi. But then they do something that again, nobody else would have guessed was coming. The second thing that they did is that they opened their treasures. Now, pause with me on this because again, there's, there's stuff going on here that you don't want to miss. Matthew could have not included this little phrase, opening their treasures, if he didn't want to. The sentence would read much more simply, and quite frankly, similarly, if he had said, they fell to the ground and worshipped him, then they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So why did he include this little phrase, opening their treasures? What's he trying to say there? And again, I spent a lot of time this week, I guess I am a dork, in front of the, that phrase, opening their treasures. And, and I did a history of that phrase and what does it really mean? And what I found was very, very, very fascinating. And that is that it probably would best be translated, not treasures, but treasure box. That that word that they translated treasure there means a, a chest 
or a room, sometimes like in the temple where they had a big room to, to store all their valuables. In this case, it probably was a box because they were traveling, but it was a chest, a box, or a room in which people would put their most valuable possessions in. So like some of you today have a safe, right? in which you put your most valuable possessions in. Some of you have a safe deposit box in which you put your most valuable possessions in. Back then they had this treasure chest and these magi were traveling with this treasure chest to hold their most valuable possessions, the stuff that meant the most to them to keep it safe and and, and strong and, and so nobody could steal it. And the second they were with Jesus, now don't miss this, they opened it. If you don't see where I'm going with this with your life, you're dense. So just hang on for a second here. But these magi fell at the feet of Jesus. They chose him above everything else. They began to worship him. And then they took what was most valuable to them and they opened it up before him. And then the third action takes place, and that is that they gave him what was in that box. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <laughs> now again, we, we say this so many times, like, do we really know what that is? Everybody knows what gold is, right? Y'all know what gold is? I, I got my gold ring on right now. I'm married to Kim. Gold is a soft, yellow, metallic substance considered precious for thousands of generations and used for monetary exchange. Gold has been for thousands of years the precious metal that people use because it's so incredibly valuable. And they had gold in their box and they gave it to Jesus. But what's frankincense? Here's what frankincense is. It's a a yellowish gum that comes from Arabic trees that they make into a resin. And and it's very rare, very valuable, especially back then. And they make it into this little liquid here that they use for incense. And back then, frankincense was, again, a very, very valuable and rare substance. It's only mentioned one other time in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 13, as it's describing the things that are precious here on earth. And it mentions frankincense. And then myrrh. What's myrrh? Well, it's similar. Myrrh also comes from a plant, and it's more of a brown resin that they make, again, into a liquid that becomes a perfume or a spice or a fragrance. And again, myrrh is only mentioned one other time in the Bible, in John 19, verse 39. Very fascinating. It's mentioned as one of the spices used to embalm Jesus. So in that rich these magi are presenting a gift of myrrh to Jesus at his birth. The same myrrh, probably not the same one, but that same spice perfume that we used in his embalming. A very precious, precious thing. And so what you simply need to see is that these were very valuable, precious things in their treasure box that they opened and laid at the feet of Jesus. I like how R.T. France, who's probably one of the better scholars on the book of Matthew says it. Sometimes these scholars say it so simply. He says these were not normally within the budget of an ordinary Jewish family. It's kind of an understatement, don't you think? But, but you get the idea. And, and so let's recap the three actions because we're going to accelerate right now into your life. They immediately began to worship Jesus. They opened up their treasures, their treasure box, and they laid down their stuff before Jesus. And again, I'm sorry I called you dense earlier. Many, if not most of you, are clearly seeing where we're going with this right now and what the connection is 
to you and me, because here's all I want you to think about as we enter this Christmas season, even as we enter into the rest of our lives. And it's simply this, this is my only point today, and that is that Jesus is a much better choice than all of our stuff. It's really true. If there's anything the Magi teach us, they're gonna teach us about our jobs, they're gonna teach us about our families, you'll see that connection in the coming two weeks. But mainly they teach us about our stuff, and they teach us that Jesus is a much better choice than all of the stuff you and I have. I mean, here you got these guys that, again, don't know anything about the Jewish religion. They don't know anything about Jesus. This is the first time they met him. And yet in the presence of Jesus, who will be Savior and Lord of the entire earth, they open up their stuff and they lay it before him because they realize that Jesus is better than all of our stuff. And again, I've been doing this for 40 years, guys. I've been pastor for 30, a Christian for 40 years. I know how many you think. If we stopped right now, here's what you would think. You'd go home today and go, well, boy, thanks for the Christmas reminder, Jamie. I mean, you know, that's actually a pretty good one, you know, that Jesus is a better choice than all of our stuff. I kind of already knew that, but, you know, it is important to remind me of that. And I already knew that, and I'm kind of good with that, but thanks for the reminder. That's how the average Christian would think today. Well, of course, Jesus is better than my stuff. Here's the problem. We know it, but we don't always act it, do we? We know that he's better than all of our stuff. But let's be honest in the house of God today as we're gathered as the church. There are too many times where we're prioritizing our stuff a lot more than Jesus. You spend much more time thinking about your stuff, giving energy to your stuff, prioritizing your life around your stuff, I do too, than we do Jesus. Don't get me wrong, we have our quiet time and we go to church for an hour a week. We might go to to, to small group now and then and we're reading the daily bread and doing all things we're told to do. But the lion's share of our energy is going to our stuff and the accumulation of our stuff than it is prioritizing Jesus. And again, some of you are going, well, well, that's just life, Jamie. That's how life is. I mean, how do you get away from that? I'm glad you asked because the Magi show us this. And again, it's not to make you feel more guilty. Some of you are squirming right now in your seat. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Here's the life-giving thing. All he's asking is for you to lay it at his feet. Amen? All he's asking you to do is take whatever treasure box you have, open it up in his presence, and say, Jesus, it's all yours. My gold, my frankincense, my myrrh, whatever it is for you, it's open before you and it's yours. Do with it what you would like. Some of you go, man, but if I do that, what's he gonna do with it? I'm glad you asked that as well because I've been doing this for about 40 years now. I got discipled really well when I first became a Christian. Again, growing up in a Magi-like environment. I was a secular religionist growing up, went to church. I thought it was a lot. Every Christmas and Easter is how often I went to church. And then I got saved. I met Jesus. And right away, I started laying down my stuff before him. And here's what I found that Jesus does if you have the guts to open up your treasure box before him. He's gonna give you one of three choices, one of three things he's gonna tell you, and he's so good to you. And it's not necessarily in this order, okay? So don't write, don't some of you go, oh good, number one, I like that one. No, it's not in this order. He's gonna tell you three things at any given time. He's gonna tell you to enjoy the stuff that he has blessed you with. 
He's going to tell you to share the stuff that he has blessed you with. And then there's times where he's going to tell you to give away the stuff that he has blessed you with. And each one of these are valid, but you're not going to know what he wants you to do with them until you open up your chests and your boxes and say, well, what do you want, Jesus? You know, there are times where when I open up my, my treasure box to Jesus where he says, I mean, I, I clearly hear him saying, I've blessed you, my son, enjoy that. And that's legit. That's not being selfish or greedy or anything like that. It's why you should be thankful to God all the time that, that he has blessed you. I look at you guys right now and I, I, I know who you guys are and, and, and you're blessed beyond measure. And, and, and there's biblical precedent for the fact that God has blessed you to bless you. He has blessed you because he wants you to enjoy the fruits of your labor and the fruits of this earth. And that's okay. That's good. There are plenty of times where when you have the guts to say to him, what do you want me to do with these blessings? He's going to say, enjoy them, my child. I've given them to you. But then as you keep them open before him, there will be other times where he says, now I want you to share it. I love this one. I want you to pry your hands. Just a little bit off that, Brian. <laughs> I want you to pry your hands, Rich. Just a little bit off that. And I want you to share with those around you. I have so many examples of this. Because again, Christians are pretty generous people. And, and, and I get blessed this way a lot. My friend Gordon's here. Gordon knows I'm a car guy. I love cars. There aren't too many things I love outside of church and Jesus. But one of them is cars. I've always said if I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably be a mechanic or something like that because I, I just love mechanical things. I always have since I was a kid. And I don't have a huge car collection right now. I have two, one for me and one for Kim. But there will be odd times where, I, it's true, there will be odd times where I might buy a third car that I find in Craigslist and I'll, and I'll tool around with it and I'll, and I'll fix it a little bit and I love to wax it. It's sort of my way just to unwind. I love cars. I love to go to car shows and, and, and salivate after other people's cars. I don't covet them. I salivate after them. There's a difference. And, uh, <laughs> and I love to see other cars. And something happened in the last year with cars, because there's a lot of car people in our church here, and uh, there were a couple car people I met that were showing me their cars. Again, I, I love seeing them. And one guy had a 57 Chevy in his garage, completely restored, beautiful car. And another guy had a Ford GT, if you know anything about cars, a Ford GT in his car. You think Ford, big whip. No, Ford GT. Like, see Ford versus Ferrari, you'll get it. And then he had a Ford GT. And, uh, and, 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 and they were both showing me their cars. And, and I'm not kidding. This is what happened. They said to me at one point, independently, they don't know each other, but they, in two different occasions, they said to me, and Jamie, if you'd ever like to take this car out for a day with you and Kim, I'd love for you to have it. I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a second. And I said this to both of them. You're willing to lend me your car, this 57 Chevy, this Ford GT, without you in it, for a day. And they said, yeah. And I said, are you crazy? I, I mean, I own a truck right now. It's, it's a Ford XLT. It's not a platinum. Pastor shouldn't be driving platinums. It's a Ford XLT. <laughs> and, and I like it and I, and I wax it and I keep it up. And when people ask to borrow my truck, I say, what time can I pick you up? Because you're not borrowing it without me. Because I've seen how you treat your car and you're going to scratch it. So I share, but I share in the presence of Jamie. And that's how I share my car. <laughs> and that's just a truck. I mean, these guys in an XLT at that, these guys are, are, are offering me a Ford GT. And, and I said, well, why would you do that? And I know what the answer is. Because they believe God gave this to them. They're enjoying them. But they want to share. <laughs> One guy gave the usual joke, too, that people always give. And that's what they said. Well, we, we also have insurance. So if you did crash it, uh, I can ship it. But those cars are hard to replace once you damage them. 
really, especially a Ford GT, it's never the same. And if you're thinking, did I borrow them? No, I did not, but it was kind for them to offer that. And I could tell you thousands of stories like that where Christians see their possessions as on loan from God. And they say, they've been given to me to share. Whether it be a house or food, a car, whatever it is, I'm to share, I'm to hold these loosely. Like the Magi opening their treasures and they, they share. I love seeing that among God's people. So he'll tell you to enjoy them, he'll tell you to share them, but then there will be times that he's gonna tell you to give it, to give it. It's hard to share stories about this one because, I don't know, they're very personal, right? Like if pastor gets up and brags about all the things he gave away, he'd be like, what's going, wrong, going on out there? And, and they really are private things. But I'm married to a woman who has the gift of giving. There's different spiritual gifts, and my wife loves to give things away. I've joked for 30 plus years now that my wife has the gift of giving, but don't worry, I have the gift of receiving, so we have a, a really good marriage that way. <laughs> but, but it's really true, Kim loves to give things away. And even during this pandemic, there were things that we had that she would say, I feel God is, I mean, don't you love when your wife says, I feel God is telling me to. How do you argue with that? You know, she's going, I feel God is telling us to to give this away. And and they were big things, car-like things. And every time Kim says that, I I do the godly thing. I'll say, well, I'll pray about it. I'm trying to find a way to say no. You know, I'll pray about it. And and, and then I pray about it. And sure enough, I find that, that God wants me to give it away. Now, now here's where it becomes tricky because I know how some of you think. You think, well, I could give it away, but man, I'm gonna really miss it and it's gonna be a big loss and it's gonna kind of stink and God loves a joyful giver, but I'm not gonna give joyfully. And again, I know how you think. It actually doesn't work that way. What I find is that when God tells me to give, and he does quite often, releasing that invites more of him to be first place in my life and the joy that he brings in closeness to him far outweighs the joy that that thing ever brought. That's what our opening video was trying to communicate to you, was that, yeah, eventually all that's gonna end up in a dump yard someday. All the things that you enjoy right now, we weren't trying to be mean about it, just will, you know that. But nobody can take Jesus away from you. As he becomes first place in your life, and as you release things as he leads you to, He's going to fill that void. It's not an empty feeling. It's a joyous feeling that the Magi experience. You think the Magi walking away going, man, am I going to miss that frankincense? Man, am I going to miss that myrrh? And we should go back and get some of that gold. I don't think they were walking away saying that. They were walking away going, we're just in the presence of Jesus. And man, was it amazing to release this stuff to him. And the point is, could that still be going on today? I think it is. I think it's going on in your life, in my life. But simple point, you gotta bring your treasure box. You gotta put it before him. You have to open it up and then just say, God, what do you want me to do? And he's gonna tell you, enjoy it at times. Share it at times. There's times he's gonna say, give it. And as you do, you're in that sweet spot right where he would have you. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for the story of the Magi. As we're going to see even in the coming weeks, there's a profundity and a richness here that is very, very life-changing. And God, today we're just parking a little bit in front of this idea of stuff. And Lord, we live in a country, a city, uh, even a church here that has a lot of stuff, probably at times too much, but a lot of stuff. Lord, we want to be people who do what you want us to do with it. 
And so, Lord, as you lead us to enjoy it, to, to, to give it, to share it, God, may we follow you. May we find the joy of the Magi, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.